Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and uh, I'm joined by my my better half, if you will, uh, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. When I say better half, he is definitely the patristic scholar, and I'm here just as the com- comic relief, as they say in uh, the coverage of NFL football. But Monsignor, welcome to the program. Thank you, and you are the progenitor of all of this stuff. So, well, uh, you're my you're my hero, Marcus. <laughs> well, I guess if anything, maybe it was my encouragement that we do this, uh, but it was based on on not just my or just your recognition of how important reading the early fathers was in our own journey and continues to be a part of our journey but so many of the men and women that we've worked with over the years um, uh, found that by rediscovering the early church fathers, how much it opened their hearts and minds to the church. And for me, this book was one of those books that Irenaeus' Against Heresies that I only read quotes from when I was a Protestant, just a few quotes because they backed up what I already believed. And then later when I became a Catholic and reading Jurgen's collection, again, I looked at those few snippets from this book, you know, but once I read the book from cover to cover, it's tough. I mean, it's good, but tough, which, which is why a lot of people set it aside. Right, Father? That's right. And um, we're going we're gonna to sail through this. Hopefully we finish book two next, next episode. And then we can promise everybody um, some of the most spectacular early Christian texts we have in book three. So. The, the section we're going to look at today is chapters 12 through 19 of book two. And I'm going to, in the past, I've often come uh, equipped on my belt with a couple of major quotes that would have jumped out in a section for me before I turned it over to you, Father. And the problem is, in this particular section, the only ones that I have underlined, you've also underlined for your discussion. So in a certain sense, I'm saying that there's not, this section for me represents one of the harder parts of the book. And the reason is, and this is why I think so, is that it seems to me, Monsignor Steenson, that what Irenaeus is doing in this section, before the section, through the section, and on into the end of the book two, is he's turning the logic of the heretics around on themselves. That's right. Um, And you're going to point out a number of those scriptures, exactly what he does. And he shows that, okay, just going by your logic... It doesn't make sense. And he, he throws it back at him. Now, the reason that's hard for me to pull out is, to a certain extent, the logic he's using, few people share today. Very few people listening to this tape 
have share any of the logic he's being critical of. So it, it doesn't connect with a lot of people today for that reason. So when they read these books, it's like, well, what, what? they just, you know, the eyes kind of glass over when you get to some of these sections. So unless you're really digging into their logic. You know, um, I, in many ways, that's right, because it's so obtuse the way they are. Mm-hmm. But I found it. I found a quotation from um, Hans Urs von Balthasar's uh, "Scandal of the Incarnation," <laughs> and I, it's just a sentence I thought I'd like to read to you. Good. Um, and to our our um, those are coming with us on this journey. Um, and it, his point is that second-century Gnosticism is still with us. Yeah. And this is very, this is, I mean, think about this. Von Balthasar is often criticized by the more traditionalist crowd as, you know, being a little bit too far out there. But this really is hard hitting, this piece of what he says here. Um, The clearest proof of the continuing relevance of the second century struggle against Gnosticism is the fashionable interest within the Christian churches in Zen meditation. (laughs) This is essentially anti-incarnational. All sensible images, all words and concepts must be removed so that there is nothing left but the unfathomable void in which a supposedly super objective insight, gnosis can flourish. Well, I don't know. I've been around. I've seen a lot of Zen groups um, in in churches, Protestant and Catholic. Um, I just thought he kind of hit the hit the nail on the head with that one. I, um, and I agree. I guess maybe what what I need to clarify in what I was saying, going exactly on what you said in Bonson, it's not that. There, there's a remnant of these thinkings today. There is, and I can. We'll, we'll get to some of those. I just don't think people today use this logic. No. Fair enough. We're, we're not philosophically trained anymore as a culture. Um, I have a book in my library called "The Science Before Science," written by a, a PhD scientist who argues that the reason we have a problem today with science is because few scientists study the science before science, which is called philosophy. And if you don't have, in other words, the, if you don't have uh, Saint Aqu- uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas first, you don't understand Newton. And, or you don't understand Einstein. You have to have the philosophy that builds, and, and I think the problem, like when I look at this, is that he's turning their arguments against himself, but few people today, they may carry the ideas, but they don't know why they're there. You know, a lot of these ideas here are, they, they just can't sit with the idea that there is a creator to everything. Because there's got to be someone before the creator, above the creator, beneath the creator. And they got all kinds of names for them, you know, right? But when we'll go into that, but they can't just settle on the idea that there is a creator. In fact, the one quote, which I imagine you'll get to, I'll just say on 
page 136. It's one that I just pulled out of this whole batch, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Monsignor, because like I said, I didn't use any of this logic. No one I know has used any of this kind of logic. They just accept things. But number three of chapter 16, that first paragraph of there on page 136. Right. Uh, St. Irenaeus says, guys, I don't know if he had the, if he had guys in his original uh, Greek when he wrote this, but he kind of says, guys, how much safer then and more accurate at once from the beginning to confess that which is indeed true, that this God, this framer, who made such a world, is God alone. And there is none besides him, himself of himself receiving the pattern and figure of the things which are made. I mean, just, just stop there, he's saying. That, that's the simplicity of it. It's when you can't accept the simplicity of it that you get yourselves in trouble. Oh, that's well put. And I made a, I was thinking about this um, this morning, how to, to summarize the way St. Irenaeus is arguing in, these, in this section. And I, I wrote down three things. Okay. See if you would agree, Marcus, with this. Um, you've already, well, actually, you already have pointed out the first point, um, that what, what St. Irenaeus does here is he's making an, a critical analysis of the structure of the way that the Gnostics argue. Yeah. Um, and he finds it essentially irrational. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, he, he argues. Um, and ultimately, the way they argue leads them to, remember we talked about this last time, it leads them to atheism because they can't ever get to a god they can't ever get to the God. They, there's always something else, you know. Because and, if the logic doesn't work in time, it eats away at them. Yeah. To the point where they give up. It reminds me, and now somebody listening is going to get angry at me, but it reminds me of somebody I heard talking about it, and we were, and he said, you know, okay, we're, what we're supposed to do to survive this difficult time is we're supposed to say six feet from one another and we're supposed to wear masks. Okay, now let's let's stop for a second. If six feet is sufficient, why do I need a mask? On the other hand, if a mask is sufficient, why do I need six feet? And you go out into the real world and you try and live both you know, six feet in a mask and we end up with this crazy world that doesn't make sense. And in the end, it may lead to disobedience. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> well put. <laughs> well put. Which is what happened here. That's yeah. what Aaron Hans is talking about. It, the confusion led to disobedience, schism, heresy. Beautifully put. Well, that was the first point I was making about the way he argues, that he shows that internally the way they are arguing their points are, is irrational. And then the second thing I, that he does is that he evaluates 
the sources of this Gnostic speculation. And he especially is uh, noting the way that they have uncritically appropriated um, uh, existing pagan philosophy and even pagan mythology. Um, and he says they haven't done a very good job borrowing it. The pagans did better than the Gnostics <laughs> <laughs> at this. And then, and then, you know, and you already pointed out at the end, toward the end of this section, um, um, he he sees their arguments as all set over against um, the church's scripture and tradition, and so he's wanting to keep he wants to keep bringing us back to scripture and to the tradition that um, is in the apostolic church, and. Um, and finds that as a, you know, to put it in modern terms, the most effective vaccine available. You know, it, oh, that's fascinating in the sense that take those three things, Monsignor, they, if you will, summarize Irenaeus trying to deal with these alternatives that are take, challenging the church. And he points out a number of times that these alternatives do not agree with one another. They don't agree with one another, right? And in fact, very often what happens is they don't want to give credit to the person they learned it from. That right. They come up with a new idea and it's their idea. That's right. And, and Irenaeus points it out all over the place. And if I think your three things, I don't know if I can remember them all exactly, but, and I don't... They're, they're I don't, irrational. They, they, they're irrational. They, they steal from the pagans. And, um, and they have utterly failed in terms of, um, uh, of uh, what, what scripture and tradition. Okay. I don't want to be take a pot shot at our separated brethren. But this is one of the reasons why, even though we don't use the same logic today, I didn't mean to say that what he's doing doesn't, it applies today because we can see it in the Protestant Reformation. Those three things were very clear amongst the reformers of the Protestant. What was the first one you said? Ira the, the irrationality of their argument. You, you look at the different reformers. Yeah. Whether you got Luther or Zwingli or Bucer or Calvin, that whole group of folk, Menno Simons, they couldn't agree with one another. And, and the logic they oh. used to get where they're at uh, was not a good carryover from Scripture. And you have them caught up in the either-ors. You have the Calvinists so committed to preserving the sovereignty of God that they have to sacrifice the freedom of the human will. You can't have both. Luther got caught up in the same thing. For him, faith alone, to the point of works don't make a difference at all. You have these, you know, the, 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 the I'm trying to think of what it is. It reminds me of a, of a, of a teeter-totter. 
You know, you go up and down and, and you go back and forth and back and forth as the ball goes back and forth between all these different guys. Those three things you talked about were vividly portrayed in the 16th century division of the church. So in that sense, even though the logic, we aren't using the same logic, which may make it seem like, well, why should I listen to Irenaeus? He's dealing with a logic that I don't use. But the three things you point out are very much alive today. Uh, As we see one new reformer starting a new church on the block down the street who doesn't want to acknowledge the church he came from anymore or the connection of his new logic from that last one. Anyway, Father, I'm going to oh, mon- well invite you then to take us through this, these 35 pages okay. or so. Well, we'll try. And please, um, I don't want to be the only talker here. So. No. But I'll join I, okay, so I confess that I just simply gave up on chapter 12. Hmm. Um, the Gnostic interpretation of numbers, it, um, it just, I just gave up on it. So I'm not going to say one word about it. It had, well, the one thing I'll say that it had eons of confusing stuff in that chapter. Yes. How many yeah. times did he word the year, use the word eons? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Hey. There was, and we'll get to that in a bit, um, in chapter 14. Um, I think we, Irenaeus kind of summarizes it a little bit tighter in chapter 14, and we can um, consider it then. So I propose we just jump into chapter 13 at this point um, uh, on page 121, and here's where he makes the argument that... um, the Gnostics are irrational. Um, So, moreover, this is chapter 13, section 1, page 121 at the bottom. Moreover, the first order itself of their emanation is indefensible, as we thus prove. They're emanated, they say, from the deep and from his thought, mind and the truth which point is demonstrable the opposite way. For mind is the very thing which is originative and chief, and in a matter the principle and foundation of all perception, but thought which comes from this is a movement thereof of any kind or on any subject. It does not hold for the mind to be an emanation from the deep and the thought and thought for it were more like truth, should they say, um, that of the great father and of this mind preceding a daughter thought by way of emanation. Thought is not the mother of mind, as they say, but mind becomes the, the father of thought. So what they're doing, Marcus, is reversing the, the logical procession from one's mind to the thoughts that proceed from that mind. Mind comes first, and therefore, it cannot come from some uh, from from some previous thought. Mind cannot come from a previous thought. And he goes on in uh, 
a, a few sections down the way in chapter 13 to point out that this, this way that the Gnostics are thinking is, remember that word anthro, um, anthropomorphic? Yes. Um, we learned in seminary years ago um, that um, they're, they use, they're, they're using a human way of thinking, but they don't even get that right. Um, and here's, here's one that I'm going to throw back at you um, uh, where he says we're in, um, this, is, this is section three um, in the middle of page 123. If they had known the scriptures and had been instructed by the truth, they would know, of course, that God is not as men are, neither are his thoughts as the thoughts of men. So um, um, even if the human mind does not work the way that the Gnostics describe with their theory of emanations and their separation of thought from the mind, um, uh, they're wrong on this point um, because the way that we think as human beings is not the way that God, I mean, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. I mean, this is, as Irenaeus says elsewhere, that this is very much behind this, the work of the devil. And as one of the greatest philosophers of all times, Paul Harvey, said in one of his broadcasts that if I were Satan, what's the first thing I would do? And that was I would convince the world that I don't exist. Because if I convince the world I don't exist, then I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Right, And when you look at the Gnostics, it's as if they're oblivious to how the devil is bringing confusion into their minds and hearts so that they blusterly say something that's absurd. Like this idea of, of uh, you know, what comes first, chicken or the egg, mind or thought. But even the idea of, of them thinking they can figure out how God thinks. When the truth is, we can't even figure out how I think. I don't know how you think, Monsignor. I mean, I hate to say this on recorded air, but I don't know how my wife thinks. <laughs> we, we, we don't know in reality, we don't have the capability to really know what anybody else at all thinks. We don't have that. So what we end up doing is projecting onto other people when they do something. And I think, well, what would I be thinking if I did that? Well, then that must, they must be thinking that. Well, we don't know that. So when we see God thinking, we think, well, this must be what God is thinking. No, we don't know. And so the craziness of what they, you know, I just pointed out earlier in the paragraph before, number two, where he talks about understanding leads they said understanding leads to thought and thought and imagination and imagination to reflection and reflection to purpose and purpose to, to mental deliberation and deliberation emanation in the word. And, you know, they, they've got it all figured out, you know, and in the end, it, it really, he's really saying what's, long, what's, it, what's missing here is humility before the creator. This is the clay trying to figure out the potter. When we don't even know 
ourselves, how we think. And then, as you pointed out in that last section, is the Scriptures. We've been given Mm -hmm. revelation. We've been given the truth as our beginning point. And and they've abandoned that. Uh, And again, that's why I liked Irenaeus, because he is so committed to Scripture. And when he sees Scripture and the truth, I think his word for the truth throughout his book is parallel with tradition or even the church, meaning almost the same thing. Um, it, it takes us back to the earliest days of the church and recognize it was never Scripture alone. We always had this this guarding balance of of sacred of Scripture and sacred tradition. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'll. I mean, he. You know, he goes on in that in that uh, chapter then basically to um, um, to show how um, uh, you can't argue from man to God. And we'll see a little bit later on how um, God can't exist with, I mean, you can't conceive of God without thought, um, a mind and all. And he just, it just doesn't make any sense, he argues. Well, again, it's Um, hard to do this, Monsignor, as yeah. you go on to get ready for the next section, it's just hard for us to talk about this without getting into such intimate detail with all the stuff they. And it, it's just we don't want to ignore it, but to get into it is not all that helpful. We want to get beyond this so we can get into the good meat stuff. But what Monsignor, you're doing a great job pulling us through this difficult section. Well. And in it, I'm going to jump to chapter 14. Okay. Um, okay. I, that was a favorite chapter of mine, though it's it, it's pretty um, it's pretty rich. <laughs> yes. And you know, I mean, his that chapter deals with all of the um, illicit ways that uh, the Gnostics have borrowed from the pagan um, pagan philosophy and pagan myth. And um, if you've never had a course in ancient philosophy, um, it's this is a pretty s- steep uh, hill to yeah. climb here. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not a philosopher. So, but I, I've always been interested in some of this stuff because um, it factored in, especially in the work of the early Christian apologists, as they were trying to find ways where they possibly could have a conversation with um, with with the pagan world and things that would be impossible for him to have a conversation with because it's diametrically opposed to um, what the gospel says. Um, so I just made a list of a few of the things in chapter 14 that um, um, that that he says. And um, right. um, the first one, the first one, which was actually quite funny, I thought, um, is he is. That first section talks about um, the the comic play of uh, Antiphanes, the Theogony, um, and uh, he says that much of um, you know much of what they draw from um, uh, you know the terms of night and silence, all these kind of concepts that the, that they make something out of these Gnostics. 
And he concludes that section with something very funny because he says, look, you know, it's basically giving, it's basically going to Hollywood and trying to, <laughs> trying to get um, the truth out of some, you know, popular, but really weird movie. Yeah. And so at the very end, he says, what actors everywhere in theaters recite were actors as actors in the most ornamented tones. They transfer to their own arguments, or rather they teach by the very same arguments, altering nothing but the names. You know, basically making actors into theologians. Well, I've been meaning to tell you this, Monsignor, that during this time of months without the church, if you're feeling depressed, if you feel that you have some kind of mental fog, what you need to do is you need to go on and rent the movie Joe in the Volcano. Okay. With Tom Hanks. And in that movie, you'll see that what you need to do is you need to take a trip out to an island in the middle of the Pacific where you're going to meet with a man who's going to tell you that the solution to your, to your problem is to jump into a volcano. I'm just saying, that's what you're talking about I here. You kind of nailed it there. <laughs> you know, they're taking things that are myths and making them into truths. And I don't think we need to uh, necessarily, you know, um, uh, you know, go into all the detail here. But look at in section two, or in section two on top of page one twenty nine, it kind of describes what's what's going to come. Not only are they convicted of bringing forward as their own the statements of the comic poets. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, whatever is said among all who know not God and who are called philosophers, that they collect and stitching it together like a patchwork of many and very bad morsels of cloth have contrived themselves a fame cloak by their subtle talk, introducing a learning which is new, yep. which yep. it's not. But So so here's, here's a little bit of the recipe of... Um, Gnostic stew that we that he put. Um, he he in section three he uh, mentions the Epicureans. Um, we think of the Epicureans as um, people who you know really love pleasure. Um, they also had a very elaborate um, uh, cosmology and. So the void or the vacuum that's so important to the Gnostic way of thinking, um, Irenaeus points out that's, you know, they basically stole this idea from the Epicureans. In section four, um, Plato is mentioned. And of course that gets my attention because the, you know, the early Christian writers are fascinated with the potential to have a conversation with an honest lateness. Um, uh, because, you know, uh, oh, was it Justin? I can't, I think it was Justin Martyr who made the argument that Plato can get you the first two persons of the Trinity. Hmm. Um, he can get you the Father and the Word or the Son. It's just that 
he can't get the spirit out of it. You can't get the spirit out of that. Um, but one thing I made a note of when I was teaching in seminary that I would point out, um, the one thing that that the early Christian writers realized they couldn't do with Plato is, um, is on the matter of how the universe was created. Hmm. Because the Platonists, Plato believed that everything always existed. Matter always existed. So um, matter was like, uh, I always tried to imagine this as if the creator is the demiurge, a kind of a craftsman or a somebody that just loves tinkering around in his shop. Um, what becomes the material world is basically scraps out in the in the garbage heap, <laughs> in the scrap metal heap, and he's going to get that and sort of weave that together into something else. So um, the idea that the world is made out of pre-existing matter, um, uh, Irenaeus says that comes from Plato, hmm. and then he then he then um, in 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 still in section three um, or still in section four we also meet up with the Stoics. Um, Marcus, I've been deeply moved um, when I read early Christian writings about how, in terms of morality, the early church found so much in common with the, with the, the great leading Stoics in terms of um, living a high moral standard in life. Um, that that's really impressive, but when you get to stoicism in terms of when it thinks about God, they're weird <laughs> because because you know the stoic wants to argue that we're all connected to the one um, by this flame of divinity, and I always tried to explain it as like you imagine that God is the sun and He's just sparking out light rays and everybody every living soul captures one of those rays um and and here we see um Irenaeus saying that the uh, Gnostics basically took that idea of uh, Plato um or, or the Stoic idea of these sparks of divinity in each soul and he um and they and they took that and basically turn that into um the search that those that are in the know will they're gonna they're gonna follow a path that they're gonna find where that spark came from. I forget who I was listening to that said that during this time period, when you have by this time a hundred years of the gospel entering into the Gentile world. Um, the Greek world, and then the Roman culture, is that a lot of these Christians like Justin and I forget the 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 teacher that led to Origin. Uh, uh, that would be Clement. Clement. Clement of Alexandria. Alexandria, excuse me. That one of the 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 quests was to. Examine the idea that 
In the Hebrew history, we have the, the, the background, the foundation of the Old Testament and the laws of Moses and the prophets that form the backdrop for the gospel. So in other words, they began with a belief in the Creator and then came to understand our Lord Jesus as his Son and then the Holy Spirit. So there was a, a, a Hebrew background to that. But the Gentiles, their quest was, well, did we have a similar background that formed a foundation for the same thing? Can we get to the same place that Christ brought us, but from our background, from Plato, Empedocles, Anaxagoras, whatever these guys' name was, the Stoics, Pythagoras. In other mm -hmm. words, that was part of the quest. Can we begin there and by grace reason our way to where we are so that there were two paths leading to the same place? God always giving knowledge that, as you said, you know, lead, led at least to the Father and to the Son. And and if you will, that's what's behind all these sto all behind these Gnostics, is thinking yeah. I figured it out. I figured it out. This is where Plato was really heading. He didn't quite have it right, but I've got it figured out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what they were all were doing. That's it. That's that's a wonderful way to put it. That's a wonderful way to put it. Um. Well, just pushing on, you know, in section five, he introduces us to, um, um, to Hesiod and um, this myth of Pandora. Marcus, when you think of Pandora's box, what do you think is inside of it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I know enough about it. I know it was you just don't know. Pandora's box, that you know, wasn't you, the two it, doors, was it? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, yeah. it was a box. But if you open, when you say, you know, if you do that, you're going to open Pandora's box. What yeah, do, what can of worms was mean? the other way of saying it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's it, you know. Um, the And in, in, um, in Hesiod's myth about Pandora, who is kind of like a mother god, um, that box contains all the evil, and when she opens it up, that the, the evils come into the world. Um, so we meet up with that. And then later on in this section, um, the cynics. And the cynics, um, uh, basically, it's the moral question on with the cynics. It doesn't matter what you do with your body because, you know, it's the soul that counts. So you can do whatever you want with your body on Saturday night. doesn't matter. And... Then the last one we meet up with, and this, I had to read this because, you know, Catholic people um, are not quite adjusted to the way that the early fathers talk about Aristotle. But <laughs> look at the last section of five, section five on page 131. Yep. And frivolous talk 
and subtlety of disputation, being of Aristotelian origin, they tried to bring into the faith. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, oh, that is classic patristic way of thinking. Aristotle in these early centuries um, would, would not have been seen as a fertile, fertile ground to help, help articulate the gospel. It was a lot of meandering and, you know. Well, again, going back to the the idea, again, I can't remember who I read it and which patristic scholar I read it, this idea of them looking for a path, an alternative path that God used in the Gentile world, um, and it just led everywhere. And right there, Aristotle, and it took a long time for that to even be accepted. Now, wasn't August... Uh, Augustine, uh, uh, a, a Platonist. Yes, they all were. Yeah, yeah. They, they all were. We, we. It's interesting, you know. Athanasius said that um, he compared to Aria. He compared Arius to Aristotle. Hmm. Um, you know the way the way that the heretics kind of spin arguments. I get. It wasn't Aristotle's thought. It was. Uh, the you know the method of arguing that's what turned them off. Yeah. Um, yeah, that Thomas so Aquinas. Anyway, that was, Thomas Aquinas that was a funny point. adapted in spades, but uh, right. So what you pointed out is all these different uh, fathers, of, as you will, not fathers of the church, but fathers of of uh, Greek philosophy that form the background for these Gnostic thinkers. That's right, yeah, very much so, yeah. And then um, in section six, we meet up with the Pythagoreans. And this, I thought, is a better paragraph to look at than, okay. that, than that one in chapter 12, because it kind of basically boils it down a little bit more. And again, I've never been much into numerology, um, but... Um, Pythagoreans believed that numerology was the key to discovering the truth, and we know that the Gnostics were fascinated with numbers, and um, so they kept going at it. Um, nothing really here to pull out, um, except I just wanted to make a comment for people that might be looking uh, for a really good book to read, um, a great novel, in, in this time, it's Carol Goodman wrote a book in 2008 called The Night Villa. Carol Goodman, The Night Villa. And it's, it's, about, it's about Herculaneum and Pompeii um, and, and the whole, you know, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in, in the first century. But it's written from the point of view of, um, of a scholar at the University of Texas who goes over to find it. And she is dealing with friends and family that have been hooked, gotten sucked up into um, a Pythagorean sect. <laughs> um, and just the way that numbers are used and, and, and turned into mystical things, I thought that it's, it's just a brilliant novel by Carol Goodman. Um, if you love... If you love stuff like that, you well, really enjoy it. And I it think. parallels the verse, I mean, the script, the, the, the sentence that 
Irenaeus says at the beginning of chapter 6, when he says, but as to their notion of translating this whole world into certain numbers, they took it from the Pythagoreans. For those laid down numbers as the first principle of all things, having again as their own principle the even and the odd, out of which they framed by conjecture both sensible things and things beyond sense. Well, the reason I also connect with that is I was originally a mathematician. That was my strength. That's why I went into engineering. That's why uh, mathematics is, to me, was fascinating. Um, because the truth is that it really is an amazing thing that we can come up with equations that can explain reality, that are reproducible. Um, and the question is, why? Why is this in this world? I, my dad, who taught me a, a joke, I won't go through the whole joke, but it was so that I could remember something. He taught me this when I was five years old. It's a story about these early American tribes had gotten together and they were trying to barter or come to a decision. And these tribes were known by the hides that the chiefs wore. And this one tribe, the chief wore a hide of a buffalo. And the other tribe wore the hide of a deer. And the third tribe, who had, who had traded with these weird strangers, wore a hide of an animal called a hippopotamus. And the other two smaller tribes of the buffalo and the deer were so desirous of and what, they were, what they were bartering as their wives. And they were so desirous of the wife of the chief that had this amazing hide that they decided to go together. So the chief of the deer hide and the chief of the buffalo hide went together to trade their two squaws for the squaw of the... And so the end of it is they discovered that the squaw of the hippopotamus hide was equal to the sum of the other two hides. Now, that's how I always remembered that the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. Now, I didn't need to put that into this recording, but the point is there's a, there's a mathematical rule that is true in the universe. Two plus two equals four. Where did that, why? And the Pythagoreans were amazed by that. It could lead one to God. Or it could lead to nonsense, which is what Irenaeus is saying in this. Well put. Sorry about that diversion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed that very much, um, that very much. So um, I think we, we should maybe move on to chapter 15. 
Because um, otherwise, we'll get kind of bogged down on this one. But you right. can see, all basically, the argument in in chapter fourteen is um, that they're borrowing uncritically from yep. um, from pagan philosophy and and even pagan mythology. Um, Chapter 15, um, on page 184, he, he's kind of back to the argument about um, the, the rational structure of their argument being defective. Um, uh, it goes around this theory of uh, emanations. So in the second sentence in that, or third sentence in that, uh, section one, these things, they say, came not into being because of creation, but creation because of them. Um, basically, he's arguing that they, they've got it vice versa. Um, uh, Irenaeus is arguing here that these eons, um, which, which could be called angels, these eons or these angels, um, they were created too. And they exist because of the whole creation that they were created to serve. Um, and, and he basically his argument is in, in chapter uh, 15 that the Gnostics have got it absolutely upside down. Um, they're irrational in the way they're thinking about, about this. Um, chapter 16, we talked about this at the beginning of our time today, um, how it is that this never ending quest for God is going to lead to, um, our souls kind of running out of fuel and just falling out of the sky. Basically, um, the Gnostic theory of creation is a never ending quest, um, in section one, um, on page uh, 135, yeah. yeah. Um, um, they will be driven mad and shut up into a confusion of some other order of things above their pleroma, more spiritual and of more absolute authority, according to which their pleroma was shaped out. So this argument that they're going to go crazy you know, this endless search is going to drive them mad. And um, St. Irenaeus says here that um, it, it's essential that if, to, otherwise we're going to go insane. It's essential that we have a creator who wills the creation and the created order. Um, otherwise, you'll keep having to look for whatever that mind is that uh, willed it all, because something ultimately had to will everything into existence. Um, let's see, where is it here? Thus, uh, at the bottom of page 135, thus the mind must either stay itself upon that God who made the world, you know, our God, yeah. that of his own power and from himself he received the model of the world's formation or if a man wants swerve from this, there will be always need of inquiry. Whence he who is above the creator had his pattern 
of the things which are made, um, all these emanations and so on. Yeah. And basically, just to, it just you're left into the at the very end of this section. We cast ourselves into the uh, into the endless images of images. We just never get anywhere. It's a it's a gruesome fate. And the people probably of that were listening to Irenaeus could see this because if they just compared what one Gnostic teacher said versus the next Gnostic teacher versus the next Gnostic teacher, that as he says, they just uh, were going into endless images of images. It just gets there. And of course, I mean, Monsignor, how does that apply to today? I, I almost feel like we've gotten to the point at this time in the 21st century where because through the availability of information in a way that never existed before, certainly didn't exist during Irenaeus's time, but has never yeah. ex you know, today with the internet, the availability of Google to find out almost any, anything we want, it's almost as if, especially in the younger people, our age group, I can remember a time before the internet. There's a lot of young people that don't even remember a world before the internet, the availability of this. And so they've seen the endless images of images to the point where I almost get the feeling that so many just don't care anymore. Yeah. And, and um, if, the, if the human mind were digital rather than analog, <laughs> Uh, how would we ever get any, I mean, it just, it would just be basically a, a, a library of unconnected information. Um, it doesn't take us anywhere. We, I think the human soul needs an anchor. I mean, that's the, uh, the deepest desire in all of us is that there is something that is a firm anchor that we can order everything to. And I think that's probably what St. Irenaeus back here in the later second century is trying to argue as well. That's what we need. We can't live with the Gnostic way. And it's likely that many of those Gnostic teachers, their intent was right. Right? Many of them, their yeah. intent was to find truth. Yes. They're, that's we, we wanted not all of them were just scoundrels a lot of them their intent was right and so but as we quoted earlier you've got to look for the source of a trustworthy authority that's why he keeps saying monsignor you know it's i began this section by quoting section three from chapter yeah 16 and i'm thinking uh -huh. monsignor that maybe we'll end again with that this Session. Okay. Why don't we end with that, and then we'll pick up again next time with chapter seventeen. And we our intent this time was to go through um, chapter nineteen, but maybe we'll what we'll do is we'll try and and get as far to finishing up book two next time because we've already gone okay. quite a long time with this. Um, yeah. No, it's been, it's, well, we've, yeah, we have spun this out pretty far. I had, yeah, you, I've covered pretty much everything that I wanted to cover on this. Um, 
when we get into chapter 17 next time, um, he's going to basically summarize all the different problems um, with the Gnostic view of creation. So, um, you know, and I, I think we'll, basically that's going to be the, his burden now. Is Why don't we, we do that, we'll Monsignor? Do. Let's begin that, that. In other words, when we join in, Monsignor, you'll use 17 as a summary okay. of what we've come. I didn't find a whole lot in section 18 or 19, frankly. My eyes just glazed over in that section. <laughs> and maybe you yeah. can pull something out. <laughs> no. it, it picked up again in, yeah, we, in it, chapter 20. Right. I think I think just for the sake of our our um our friends we should really try to make a commitment to sail through the rest of this book. Um of chap of book 2. Yeah. Yeah, it, we're we're, we're yeah. holding the carrot oh. out to you watching. Thank you for that when we get to book 3, we're going to start getting some real meat. Uh but kind of like we've said earlier, um that if we don't use the logic that they used in that first century, then even what kind of Irenaeus is trying to do doesn't always connect with exactly the way our lives, even though the evidence of it still exists in our world today. As we just said, images upon images upon images leads to atheism, leads to confusion, leads to relativism today, um, and, and people that are doing absurdly crazy things in our culture that do not make sense. Yeah. You know, helping a five-year-old boy become a woman. <laughs> How can we even imagine the craziness of that? My guess is Irenaeus would not have dreamed, even given the Gnostics. They couldn't have even dreamed, dreamt of it. And look, isn't it interesting, even in these controversial social issues that we're dealing with now, it comes down to creation yeah. and and the God who created and all, you know. And scripture and truth. Yeah, that's right. Scripture and truth. All right, Monsignor, how about closing us with the word of prayer? Yeah, you know, Marcus, with your permission, um, I'd like to use a very short one-sentence prayer that St. Irenaeus um, offered. You know, we he's pretty rough on the Gnostics here in book two, <laughs> but, but I'm going to jump ahead to book three and get this little prayer out. All right. He never loses sight of the fact that he is obligated as a Christian to pray for those Gnostic heretics. Um, and at several places, he, he mentions that, that we have an obligation to pray for these people who are lost, mm -hmm. even though they're doing so much damage to the church. So I just want to pray this little prayer that, um, that he did in um, book three, section six, um, paragraph four on page 215. So, in, in section four, he, he begins by praying. He's, the prayer is to God the Father. And I'm just going to close with the last sentence here. Grant to everyone who reads this writing to acknowledge thee that thou art the only God, 
and to be strengthened in thee and to withdraw from all heresy, all godless, all impious opinions. Yeah. It, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Thank you for that, Monsignor. Yeah, that does cut to the underlying motive of why Irenaeus is writing this book. Not to condemn, but to draw people closer to Christ in his church. So, thank you, Monsignor. For joining us, we'll pick up God next week you. with chapter 17 again. And then all of you, uh, again, the carrot, we are working towards the deeper part, but we don't want to just skip over this whole section. Uh, but we'll do the best we can to, uh, to glean from this as we lead to uh, particularly chapter 3. So we'll look forward to being with you again next week.